Deuteronomy 5, 12 through 15. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. The word of the Lord. All right, good morning, guys. My name is Dan. I'm on the leadership team here at, at Trailhead Church, and we're in the third week of our series entitled Deep Rest, Finding True Rest uh, for Our Souls. In looking at our need for rest and how God ultimately is the one that can fill that need, he's the ultimate solution uh, to our need. So as we dig in this morning, I want to start by um, just sharing with you a story that some of you may know. It's one from uh, Greek mythology. It's the story of a character named Sisyphus. According to Greek mythology, Sisyphus was a crafty dude. He was uh, smart. He was hungry for power and control. And that led him, I'm not going to give you the full background this morning, um, but basically he did some not so great things in his effort to seek power, to have control. Um, He did some things that were, were not very cool. And as a result, Sisyphus was sentenced to an eternity of useless effort and frustration. His punishment was that he was forced to roll this giant boulder up a hill. And as he would near the top, the boulder would always move and end up rolling back down the hill again. And he would have to go back down to the bottom and start over again, over and over and over again for eternity. Sisyphus was essentially condemned to a life of slavery, of futility, of useless effort. Now, this story sounds uh, pretty awful, and uh, I'm going to guess that as I tell this story, there are some of you that may be feeling right now that sometimes your life seems a little bit like you can relate to Sisyphus. There are things in your life that you just feel like you just have to do over and over again, and you may be wondering, what's the point? What's the goal of what it is that I'm doing? You're tired. You're exhausted. You're feeling like the things that that you're doing are futile and without much reward. Maybe for you, the, uh, the giant boulder, maybe that boulder is your job. Maybe you wake up every morning, get your cup of coffee, and then you go sit in, in St. Louis traffic trying to make it to work. You get there, you put in your 8 to 10 hours on the job, you eat your, your frozen microwave dinner that tastes like the cardboard box that it, that it came in. I know a lot of you, a lot of you are tasting that right now. Is that, maybe, that may be you, that you're, you're pretty confident that frozen lasagna or those, those hot pockets you have are pretty much 90% recycled materials. Um, yep, you, know, you know what I'm talking about there. And then after working your 8 or 10 hour day, you go home, maybe to get, catch a few minutes of television, 
may be to have a superficial conversation with your spouse, to then go to bed and get up and do it again the next day. For some of you, maybe that boulder is a struggle or something that you've been wrestling with in your life, maybe a, a behavior or something about yourself that you wish, wish was different. Maybe you roll your boulder of sobriety up the hill, and you get close to feeling like you've finally gotten victory over whatever the struggle is for the boulder to move and to roll back down the hill, and you feel like you're starting over again. You feel like you're a slave to the thing that you're working against. So the boulder could be money, it could be productivity, it could be self-discipline, maybe it's a romantic relationship, maybe it's a point of, of suffering, a point of pain for you that you have to continually deal with every day. The list goes on and on. And my point is that whether or not we realize it, um, we all have areas of our life where we can somewhat relate to Sisyphus. And the problem is this, that when we turn to good things, the good things in life, into ultimate things, we believe that whatever our metaphorical boulder is, that when we get victory, that then life is going to be good. Then we'll be satisfied. Then we'll be free. And this is what the Bible calls idolatry. So we often fail to see that at some point our boulder will always run back down the hill, our boulder of self-effort, our boulder of trying harder. And our idols will always fail us, they'll always leave us drained and disappointed. So where are we going this morning? This morning, what I hoped to convey to you is one, is what is God's desire for this? If we can relate to Sisyphus, what is God's desire? What is his plan for us? And then is there a deeper problem? Is there a deeper problem to the struggles that we face, to our lack of rest, to our, our feelings of exhaustion? There's a deeper problem that resides in our hearts, and that's what we're going to dig into this morning. And then how does God set us free? How does he set us free to live differently? And the big idea today that I hope we can come away with is that our idols enslave us, but God sets us free. So our passage this morning in Deuteronomy is from the Old Testament. Okay, it's ancient, ancient history. This is true story. It's in Scripture. And God gave his people some rules to live by, some guidelines for them to live. And we call these rules the Ten Commandments. And the fourth commandment is this, and we're going to turn back to our passage in Deuteronomy. I'll have it up on the screen here if you'd like to, to read it there. Starting at verse 12. So observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to do Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, or your male servant or your female servant, your ox or your donkey, or any of your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. And as I was reading this, this is the this is the section that really caught my attention this week. It says, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. 
see here, we're looking at a list of, of rules, okay? a list of guidelines that God gave us to follow, that he gave his people, the Israelites, to follow. But in this passage, he also gives us some insight into the motivation, into the reason behind him giving this rule. He gives us some insight into who he is. He gives us some insight into what he does for us. This word was spoken to God's people, the Israelites, right after they had come out of slavery, slavery in Egypt. Okay, this is a story of, of Moses and Pharaoh and, and, of course, the Ten Commandments and crossing the Red Sea. Okay, this is that place in history. Okay, the Israelites were under the bondage of slavery from the Egyptians. They were under heavy bondage. And God says, I want you to remember that time. I want you to remember what that was like to remember that you were in a place where you could not save yourselves. There was nothing they could have done in order to get gotten out of that slavery. They needed someone more powerful than them, mightier than them, to help them. They were unable to attain their freedom. But God says, I brought you out. God says, you are no longer slaves. You're no longer slaves, but I have brought you out of that slavery God says, remember that time, remember that it was hard, remember that it was burdensome, and you were suffering. But God in his power delivered them, gave them a new identity, and he set them free. See, here God reveals his intent for his people. His intent was that they would be free, that they would live for him and live free. So here God declares his desire for him. He declares his glory and he declares his authority. He says, I know what's best for you. Do as I say because you are not slaves. Don't willingly submit yourselves to slavery. But take a day off. Take a day to remember me, to remember my desire for you, to remember the good things that I've, I've done for you. And that was the point behind this rule, for us to be able to reflect upon God Israelite people to reflect on God. Now, some of you might be wondering at this point, um, Dan, are you going to tell us that the trailhead is going to advocate a strict, a strict observance of the Sabbath, that, that you can no longer work on Sundays, that that's, we're going to push that and say, stop, stop working, don't go out to eat, don't do any of those things. That may be good for some of you. You may decide that that is what you want to do, but that's not what we're advocating here and saying you have to do that. That's between you and God to decide that. My hope this morning is that we look at the deeper heart issues that leave us exhausted. We look at the ways that we submit ourselves to slavery. What we can draw from this passage, in part, is that our failure to stop working can be a voluntary submission to slavery. That God promised to take care of the Israelites, to set them free. And for them, for them to disobey this command expressed a lack of trust that God would provide for them, a rejection of his authority, because it was a command that he gave to them, and ultimately worship of something other than God. Now, earlier I mentioned the words uh, idol, and idolatry. And uh, most of us, we probably don't have idol in the, in the ancient history sense, 
where we have a little statue maybe above our mantle that we, we get home and we pray to and, and we bow down to. Um, we probably don't have that. Um, but Pastor Tim Keller defines an idol as this. He says, it's anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. See, so when we take something that's good, something that's good in our life, but something that offers us incomplete joy, temporary joy, and we build our entire life around that thing. And the reality is that if we're not turning to God for our deepest joy, we're turning to our idols. We look at our finances, we look at our relationships, our jobs, our accomplishments, our success, at parenting maybe, and a host of other things to give us joy. And we worship those things by giving them the highest value in our life. And we all do this. So this morning, it's not so much a question of are we worshiping or not. It's more a question of what is it that we're worshiping. We were made to worship. That's the way God created us. He created us to worship Him. But in a rebellion, we choose to worship other things. And this is like, to give you a metaphor, this is kind of like a garden hose that's always on. It's not a matter of whether the hose is on or not. It's a matter of where you're pointing the hose. What is it that you're watering? Where is your worship directed? It's not whether it's on or off. It's where is it going? So the question this morning is, where is your worship pointed? Where is it directed? So how are we going to dig into this uh, this morning? Um, So if we're all worshipers, and we're all prone to idolatry. How do, we, how do I identify the idols? How do I identify, how do I look into, how do we look into our hearts and say, what, what are those things that we tend to worship? And Pastor Keller, Pastor Tim Keller, again, gives us some insight into this. In his book, uh, Counterfeit Gods, he breaks this down for us into four deep idols that are hidden in our hearts. And every person can identify with one of these as a primary one, and we all have hints of the others uh, in our lives. And so, so this morning, I hope, I hope you're ready uh, for this as we dig in, um, because uh, this is kind of like doing heart surgery this morning, and I know most people are, are typically quiet during heart surgery, and uh, so, but uh, bear with me, um, we're going to go there uh, this morning. All right, so the first idol is comfort idolatry. All right, this is the person, the person with comfort idolatry, they value privacy. Okay, they say, don't get in my business, don't judge me for what I do or don't do. Lack of stress and freedom of choice, their independence is above all else. So if you're prone to this, if you're a comfort idolater, your greatest nightmare is stress and demands. Don't put any demands on me, don't give me anything that will stress me out. And in your quest for comfort, you end up leaving others feeling hurt as you're unwilling to sacrifice your time and your energy in order to serve them, in order to love them, and to invest in your relationship. The underlying belief here for the comfort idolater is that life only has meaning, that I only have worth if I have this kind of pleasure experience or a particular quality of life. 
So what are some ways that we can look and see if, if this is us? One way to do this is simply look at uh, where you spend your money. It's a good way to reveal comfort idolatry. If a lot of your money goes towards entertainment, if it goes towards dining out and getting the latest gadget, uh, you might be a, a comfort idolater. And as I say that, I'm kind of reminded of um, the uh, you might be a redneck jokes. Okay, So this, this may be... Uh, if your television is bigger than your bed, you might be a comfort idolater. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm just going to apologize for that one. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I apologize to any Southerners that are here this morning. Um, all right, so this, this may reveal our heart. Looking at where, where we find rest, where we find joy? Is it in comfort? And this idol enslaves us, okay, because a lot of comfort idolaters hear this voice that says, don't try, don't work because you're going to fail. You're not going to succeed. It's simply not worth the effort. Okay? It's easier to stay where you're at. It's easier to be comfortable. Why make the effort if you're only going to fail? And you end up feeling bored, defeated, and ashamed. So you struggle to invest your delight into God because either you doubt that it's worth it or that you will actually find joy in Him. And the idol enslaves us. The next idol this morning, next idol that we're prone to is approval idolatry. And this is one that I know for myself, this is one that, that I am prone to continually seeking repentance for. See, the approval idolater seeks affirmation. They seek love. They seek relationship from others. They're willing to sacrifice their independence, willing to sacrifice their personal identity in order to gain the approval of another. And their greatest fear is not measuring up to someone else's expectations and being rejected by that person. And for these people, when they engage relationship, they end up leaving others feeling smothered as the approval idolaters' underlying belief that life only has meaning, only has worth, if I am loved and respected by this person. Approval idolaters hate, you hate confrontation. You hate challenging others because a fight or a separation in relationship, leaves us in utter despair, worried that, that we've lost that relationship, that we no longer have that person's approval. The approval idol enslaves us by degrading our dignity. It leaves us as cowards as we are constantly evaluating our worth and value based on how someone else perceives us rather than how God sees us. The next idol in our list is control. Um, control idolaters value self-discipline. They value certainty. They value rules. Okay, these are the, are the keep-off-the-grass people. These people um, might be taking notes right now. Sorry, I'm going to pick on you a little bit. Um, you might be taking notes right now, and there's a good chance your notes probably look better than mine right now. Um, that, may be, that may be you this morning. 
An ambiguity or a last-minute change of plans rocks your world and puts you in a bad mood if you're a comfort idolater. It rocks your world. You believe there's a right way to do things, and if they aren't done that way, if they're not done that way, then you might get upset because of that. And the spontaneous people, the flexible people, they, they freak you out. They scare you. It makes you nervous to work, work with them, okay? Because you don't know what to expect. You don't know what's coming next. But the price you end up paying is loneliness because you're prone to make others feel condemned or like failures when they don't meet your expectations, when they don't meet your standards. Because the underlying belief of a controller, control idolater is that life only has meaning, I only have worth if I'm able to get mastery over a particular area in life. Maybe it's, maybe it's parenting. Maybe it's a super efficient routine on the job. Maybe it's counting the calories and eating only organic foods. I know some of you that know me were waiting for that one when I was going to work that one in. Um, but this idol enslaves us by leaving us exhausted with worry and anxiety. You're unable to find freedom. You're unable to fully enjoy life because you're paralyzed by the fear of the next surprise or that things aren't going to turn out the way that you've planned. You find it hard to trust that God is sovereign, that he will provide for you, and that he's your good heavenly father. And our last idol is success. These are the people that the most important thing, the most important thing for you is winning. You want to get influence. You want to get respect from others. You're willing to take on heavy burdens of responsibility because you want that respect. That You don't care as much that people like you. You care that they respect you and that maybe they're envious of the things that you have, the things that you've done, your accomplishments. You want them to be envious Because the underlying belief is that life only has meaning, it only has worth, if you have power and influence over others. And your biggest fear is humiliation and losing. You respond in anger to other people if you see that you're on a trajectory to lose, if you see that you're not winning, you're tempted to be angry. And in your drive and in your motivation, you leave others feeling, feeling used rather than loved. Success people love to boast in their busyness. The one who can work the hardest against the toughest odds with the fewest resources and ends up getting the most toys, that's the person, that's the person that wins. And this idol enslaves us by distracting us from pursuing the things that are most important in life. It distracts us from obtaining the joy, the deep joy and satisfaction that you're truly looking for. By investing your energy into temporary things that don't matter, when you're on your deathbed, it's not going to matter. You're not going to look back and say, boy, I wish I had worked, I worked harder. Boy, I wish I had done this at my job. It's going to be about the people that are around you. It's going to be about your relationship with God. And some of you this morning, you may be wondering, what is the, what is the big thing? What is the big thing that I'm going to be able to do for the world that I'm going to be able to do for God. But you have trouble finding contentment in the biggest thing that God has already done for you. 
So where do we go? Where do we go from here? In our passage in Deuteronomy, God commanded us to remember, commanded the Israelites to remember their slavery and how God delivered them. He provided a solution to their oppression. He provided a solution to their bondage. In the story of Exodus, God leading his people out of Egypt, out of slavery, okay, this is a shadow, a hint of the ultimate story of redemption that God would later provide through his son. See, humanity's greatest problem, our greatest problem is that of sin, sin being our disobedience to God, our rejection of who God is. We rebel against the one that created us. We want to be our own gods. We want to find our joy in created things rather than God. And in doing so, we submit ourselves to slavery because the things that we chase after, the things that we pursue, will never fulfill us. Our efforts are like Sisyphus. We push the, ball, push the boulder up the hill only to have it roll back down again. And it leaves us drained. It leaves us exhausted. It leaves us tired. And the worst part of that is, is that we're powerless to change it. We consistently pursue after those things. We consistently submit ourselves to slavery. And the consequence of our sin, the consequence of our rebellion, Scripture says the consequence of that was, was death. But God was committed for us to be free. And he did so by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life that we couldn't live, to die in our place by taking judgment upon himself, the judgment for rebellion that we deserved, dying on the cross for us, and on the third day, rising again, giving us the promise of new life. To the comfort idolater, God gives you a better freedom and joy than any temporary pleasure can provide. The cool thing about finding joy, about finding delight in God, is that God doesn't withhold. God doesn't withhold relationship from us because of what Jesus has done. We're no longer separated in our relationship with him when we believe in him. And as you grow in knowing God, as you grow in seeing his work in and around us, you will find a deeper joy, a deeper rest than what you've ever known. To the approval, idolater, he sets you free by giving you the approval of the, pers- of the person that loves and cares for you the most. You have the gift of restored relationship with the Father, with the creator of the universe. Christ finished work on our behalf and our belief in him guarantees for us that God will never reject us. Comfort idolaters' biggest fear of being rejected. God says, I will never reject you because of what Christ has done. To the comfort idolater, he gives us the certainty that he is in control. That God is sovereign over everything and he is faithful to provide for our needs. The scripture says that if we're anxious... It gives us instructions on what to do with that anxiety. It says, bring your request to God. Bring your anxiety to God. Let him know what that is. Talk to him about it. And God will give us peace. He will give us peace from the anxiety that can sometimes paralyze us. 
to the success idolater. He gives you rest by winning the battle over sin and death, the battle that we could never have won. He accomplished it for us. He did it for us. And we get to enjoy the rewards. We get eternal life, and we get the promise that our hope of eternity will not result in humiliation. All right, so I've just unloaded a lot on you as we've, we've walked through that. And now we come to the question, okay, how do we change? How do we change? How do we live differently and stop submitting to things that enslave us? Okay? If our idols enslave us and God sets us free, how do we walk in that freedom that he has given us? How do we walk into that? See, when we attempt to turn from our idols, when we attempt to change, we're attempting heart change. We're attempting to change things deep in our inner being. We're not so good at doing that on our own. I don't know if, how many of you have, have tried that, but it's hard. It's hard. Okay? In fact, it's, uh, it's pretty much impossible. Okay? See, willpower isn't effective in changing our hearts, at least not the change that lasts and with the right motivations. See, the Apostle Paul gives us some insight in his letter to the Colossian church. So we're going to look in Colossians chapter 3. It's on page 984. So turn with me. Colossians 3, starting at verse 1. It says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. There are a few things I want to draw out from here that this passage unpacks for us, I believe. The first thing I want to encourage you to do, if you've identified an area of idolatry in your life, an area that's leaving you drained, exhausted, a heart issue, the first thing we can do is pray for repentance. See, this call here where Paul says, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, put to death, therefore, that is that what is earthly in you. He's not saying just stop doing those things or you know, put, it, put it in the corner, put it in the closet. He says, no, put those things to death. Just kill it. Kill the things that are idolatrous in your life because they're enslaving you. He says, put those things to death. But repentance is, is hard. Repentance means, means acknowledging our sin and turning away from it. And this morning, I'm not going to fully unpack that. I want to encourage you to come back next week as Pastor Steve uh, will be preaching, and he's going to unpack that further. What is repentance? How do we repent? We're going to dig into that next week. But I want to encourage you this week to begin praying, asking God, God, what does repentance look like 
for me? How do I do this? We need God's help. Scripture says repentance is a gift that God gives us. So I want to encourage you this week uh, to pray about that and ask God for help in repenting. The next thing is that we need to allow ourselves to be reminded of who God is and what He does. Our passage in Colossians says, Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And this is reminiscent of what we read in Deuteronomy, where God says, Stop working in order to remember me, in order to think about who I am and what I've done for you. This is the same thing that Paul is saying. Set your minds on things that are above. Set your minds on who God is, what he does. Think about his power. Think about his love for you. See, in order for us to change, in order for us to change our hearts, we must see that Jesus is better. We have to see that Jesus is better than the idols of our heart. And this is worship. This is rejoicing in who God is and what he does. See, the reality, the truth of the matter is that Jesus really is better than whatever it is we turn to other than him. The problem is, is we just don't believe it. We don't believe it because we don't see it. We don't think about it. We don't allow it to simmer in our hearts. We don't meditate on it. Paul encourages us to set our minds on things above. He says, remember me. God says, remember me. Think about me. Think about who I am. Think about what I have done for you. See, this was the intent of the Sabbath. It wasn't about not working. It was about being free. Free to enjoy relationship with God and to find our deepest rest, our deepest joy in Him. So I want to encourage you this morning, learn to read, learn to read your Bible. Learn to pray, not out of a sense of obligation, that you have to do it in order to gain favor with God, that you have to do it right, but instead from a place of joy in discovering the truth about who God is and what he does and how much he loves you. It can come from a place of joy, but we have to do it regularly. We have to pursue it. We have to allow God to speak to us through that. And it's going to take time. I know that can sometimes be hard, especially when you're first starting out. But I'm going to encourage you to consistently do that. Allow yourself to set your mind on things that are above, who God is and what he does. The last thing I want to encourage us with this morning is for us to hope in the future grace of our final restoration. In verse 4, it says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And this may sound confusing. This verse may be confusing at first. But what Paul was reminding the church of is remember that one day, one day God is going to fix all of the brokenness that we see in our world. He's going to fix all of the sin He's going to set things right. He's going to heal. He's going to restore things back to the way that he intended them to be. This is what this verse is about. Paul's saying, remember the hope that we have. Remember what God has promised to do for us in the future. Paul says, think about that. Think about that. Remind yourself that all of the things we see here on earth, all the joy that we find here on earth, the happiness, those things are temporary. They're temporary. They're not going to be forever. And there's something more that's coming. So think about that. Think about what that's going to be like and how we can continue to trust and pursue that. See, as humans, we tend to get nearsighted, forgetting that our time in this broken world is temporary. And the reality is that this world is hard. 
We know it's broken. We see and experience pain, suffering, death, broken relationships. And the gospel reminds us that one day this will all end. We will no longer suffer. We will no longer submit ourselves to the slavery of sin. This morning as we end, I want us to go to this passage in Revelation. If you want to read it either on the screen or in your Bibles, page number is there on 1041. So in Revelation, this is about that final restoration. This is a passage talking about our future as believers. Revelation 21, starting in verse 1. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. I want you to hear this this morning, verse 4. It says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So I'll let that sit for a minute. See, in this passage, we have a picture of our future. That one day God will restore all of the broken things, and we'll get to enjoy perfect relationship with him. This is our hope. This is our peace. That God will fix all of it. That God will fix all of it. And we'll be able to fully experience the joy and the peace that he's promised us. So today I want to ask the question as we wrap up. Where does God want you to be set free? Maybe you identified with one of those, those idols that we touched on. Maybe you're starting to sense that. I want you to hear God's desire for you this morning. He wants you to be free. He wants you to experience a deeper joy, a deeper peace than any of those things can ever give you. He wants you to be able to enjoy perfect relationship with him. And the invitation this morning is to believe the gospel, to believe that Jesus Christ, God, came to earth fully God, fully human, lived the perfect life, died for us in order to restore relationship with the Father. The ultimate story of redemption. Jesus is the hero of the story, and we're called, we're invited to believe in him. We're invited to rest, not in the things that we do, because we can never earn favor with God. We can never do it on our own. We can never earn it. God says, you don't have to. You don't have to earn it. It is a gift. It is a gift that I give to you. Trust. Trust me. Trust that you'll find it in me. Respond to my pursuit for you. Respond to the message of the gospel. I want to encourage you to do that this morning. So as we wrap up, I'm going to pray for us.
Um, we're going to post some reflection questions for you to just continue to examine your, your hearts. And I know this was, some of this was a, a pretty heavy message this morning, but please hear the message of joy, that we dig into these things, we talk about these hard things, so that we can turn away from the things that don't bring us joy, the things that exhaust us, and find true joy. And this is part of that process, that we look at the hard things in order to see the better things, in order to find our joy in Christ. I want to invite you that there'll be some leaders at the back of the room that uh, would love to pray with you, would love to talk with you more if you want to continue to engage the conversation. Uh, and I encourage you to come back next week as, as Pastor Steve unpacks what is repentance, how do we repent, how do we turn from our idols.